Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. It is so good to have you joining us today for another very special program that we're recording from Anchorage, Alaska at the National Indian Health Board's National Tribal Health Conference. We've got folks from literally all over the country here, including a state that I used to call home, the state of California. That is true of Jill Sherman Warren. Jill, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Jill, you and I had a chance to meet earlier here in this convention venue. We're comparing notes, and you've got deep roots uh, with the Hoopa tribe there in California. You're a Hoopa tribal council member, and uh, it brought me back some years when I was invited to give some health lectures there in Hoopa, and we were talking about how the GPS wasn't too advanced back then, and they (laughs) routed my wife and I who were traveling into some national forest. We did ultimately get there. We love the drive. I think it still happens. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an amazing place that that you've got out there, and uh, we're just so glad that you're willing to share some of your personal story and some of your passions with my listeners. Thank you. So tribal council people, they get involved with all kinds of things. I know you've got some things that are really close to your heart. So tell us what uh, shaped your focus as someone who's so engaged in issues that transcend your tribe. Well, I grew up on Hoopa and went to school there and lived my entire life with the premise that I would never leave. Mm. But the reason I would never leave was because I was intended to provide a service to my tribe. My dad, little did I know until later, was very Kennedy-esque in his thought process. Mm. And so he, at the time that I was a child in the 60s, 70s, we had per capita payments. So payments that were provided to us as a result of timber sales. Mm -hmm. And I think my dad really felt like there was danger in that. Mm -hmm. He's never said that, but I felt like he felt like there's a danger in paying these per capita payments with the creating a mindset that was the tribe is always going to give us something. Mm -hmm. And so he would always say to us, we can't expect things from our tribes. What we can expect is to do things for our tribes. What we can expect is to figure out what it is we're supposed to do. So that was my whole thought was mm-hmm. I'm going to live, die, and do for my tribe. Wonderful. I had difficulty in high school, mainly because most of my peer group that I had gone to kindergarten with, by the time I went into high school, most of them had disappeared. About half of them disappeared out of the eighth grade. Eighth grade. Not that they went anywhere. Uh-huh. They just didn't go to high school. Wow. And then by the time I had my sophomore year, another group, and there was maybe 25% of us, and of course, even less than that ended up graduating. Mm-hmm. And so even though it was a public high school on the reservation, and at that time there was no, well, few, there were a few Indian teachers, but I didn't have any Indian teacher role models. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't feel like I fit in because most of the school, my school class essentially became white more, you know, Mm -hmm. and so we didn't have that kind of connection. 
And my high school counselor pulled me in my senior year in March. Graduation's June. Okay. Pulled me in in March to tell me I wasn't going to be graduating in June. No way. Yeah. And so he gave me advice. He said, Joe, you know, you're not really college material. Whoa. The best thing you can do is get married and have a couple of kids. And I really think, you know, it devastated me to hear this adult man telling me this. But I really, you know, in his defense, I think he really thought that was the best advice to say, get married and then have children. I think he really felt like after seeing many of the people within my pair group who had already had maybe two or three children by the time they were seniors, Mm. that he really felt he was giving me some good advice of getting married. So, which I did do, but I also ended up going to college Good at, for you. at Humboldt State, uh-huh. and I had this burning sensation. How it kind of started out was I just felt like I had two children. I was on general assistance. I was married. My husband worked seasonally, and I just was living a life that I didn't grow up seeing, if that makes any sense. Both my parents worked, worked really hard, mm-hmm. and here I am at home, and I don't know what to do, and I, I was watching TV, and they were advertising that College of the Redwoods was Mm. having enrollment. And I just got this, what I will describe as a spiritual thing. I had no car. So I talked my parents into giving me their car for the day so I could go enroll. And I did, and things just kind of clicked. I had Mm -hmm. no money. I was going to write a hot check. You know, I was busy standing in admissions line trying to scratch the bottom of my checkbook because somebody had once told me that if you take a coin and scratch the numbers on the bottom of the checkbook, it takes longer to process. Oh, on the check itself. (laughs) I get it. I don't know if that was true or not. Oh, okay. So there I am. I ended up seeing somebody from EOP and, you know, like things just ended up clicking and I did it. I hitchhiked with longing truck drivers to get me to the nearest town no way i know it sounds insane but i was 22 at the time and i think when you're that young you can do some pretty insane wow and mine was i'm going to go and get this college degree so every day you hitchhiked with loggers to get to school right i mean i didn't stand at the road and hitchhike i actually called the logging company and Uh asked which loggers would allow me to ride with them oh really but still yeah I know. Isn't that crazy? I love the story because, (laughs) you know, here's someone that says you're not college material. And here's this, you know, innovative young lady who's figuring out. And you've got two kids at home. Right. Right. So, you know, my parents were obviously um, great supports Uh because I couldn't at, at the time, the man that I was married to at that time, couldn't be bothered to watch his children, you know, to be the babysitter, so to speak. So my mom at 5.30 in the morning, my kids would go with my mom and, and I would go out and stand by the highway and wait for the truck driver to come and pick me up and off we go. And you would think you could have some conversation, but the trucks themselves are so loud inside. All you're doing is vibrating really? <laughs> down the road. It was crazy. But I'm ever so grateful for the two gentlemen that were the ones who risked it and allowed me to ride with them. But, you know, again... And this is even crazier. I never knew how I was going to get home. <laughs> oh, my. So I would take this hour-long journey to get to college, but I wouldn't have a backup as to how I was getting home that day. Uh-huh. In my mind, it was like somebody from the res is always going 
to you. I'm going to find a way. And this was before cell phones. Wow. So for any of that, and what ended up happening was I found out the local Indian Health Clinic had a dialysis car. And so people would go to dialysis, right? Mm. And so if somebody didn't show up, they would have, always have space. So then I would call the dialysis center to see if they had to talk to somebody from Hoopa to see if there was space in their car to ride. Uh-huh. And then I found out that there was a adjunct professor who also lived in Hoopa, and he was my last resort to uh-huh. call him and jump in with him. But okay. typically, I, I always found a ride. Like, somehow, someway, I always wow. found a ride home. <laughs> and how long did you do that for? For a whole semester. Wow. Yeah. And so did you end up completing a degree there? Well, I graduated from College of the Redwoods with, you uh-huh. know, your AA, your general ed. Still. And then I went to Humboldt State. Wow. And did complete. By, by my second semester, my grandfather took pity on me and helped me purchase a car. Wow. Yeah. So what kind of uh, degree did you walk away with? Well, I really, because of my high school experience, I thought that I should be a high school teacher. Mm. So I went to college to become a high school teacher because wow. it felt like, I understood the difficulties of not being heard and not being seen Uh in school. Uh So I wanted to see them and I wanted to hear them. And so I really thought that's where my path was going to go. But in my senior year, I ended up getting a job with the tribe working in their um, K-12 program. I started running the Johnson O'Malley program. Hmm. And then, of course, I had to do some observation in the high school classroom. And (laughs) it's like... I am not prepared for, to deal with high school students. Uh, uh-huh. So I just backed away from that. And running the Johnston Maui program was really exciting for me. So I did that. And it was exciting because I still worked with high school students. I, well, not just high school, elementary. So I ran the tutoring programs. We did a student exchange program. We did the summer youth programs. And then I got into language, so I also got into tribal language. Okay. And with the help of my elders, we created the Now You're Speaking Hoopa book, mm. which I think it's in its sixth edition. Wow. So we did the first edition, and I really enjoyed my time with the elders and laughing and learning language. So did you grow up speaking your indigenous language? No, because we also had a boarding school experience on our reservation, mm. so... It wasn't encouraged, and I really feel like the torment that my grandfather went through, he didn't want to put that on my dad, and he didn't want to put that on anybody else. And in fact, when we had had discussions about, you know, why didn't you teach dad? My grandfather said, why? Mm. English, he needed to know English. And I think that that was an important thing at that time because they saw that as a way to step up in the world to be speak full English speakers mm-hmm. and to be full English speakers without a native accent. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that was the other big thing. So mm-hmm. we didn't grow up with what would be an accent. Right, right. That sometimes is indicative of somebody being honest. Exactly, exactly. So you got an amazing story <laughs> and you go and you get this education at great personal price, great uh, family price, so this big investment, and now you're back working for the tribe. Yes. Things obviously took some interesting turns from that point. It did. So, you know, I had been married, but then I ended up getting divorced, and 
I got divorced after my grandfather passed away. Like there was a lot of change. Just my grandfather had lived with us Mm -hmm. growing up. So when he died, it was like losing a father Mm -hmm. and all of us children, there's me, my brother and sister were greatly impacted by his loss. And my brother was at the time the vice chairman of the tribe. And so he stepped down from the tribal council at that time and decided to pursue his law enforcement career. And so Mm. he went into the police academy. And at that time, I was working with Johnston O'Malley and K-12 kids and language. And I ended up running for his seat. And so I ended up taking his seat. But I was also going through divorce. And so it just kind of all culminated in this change in our lives because we had lost our grandfather and really taught me a lot. So I served on the council in 95, 96, 97, and then I got off. And then I had met my husband in the meantime, or right before I got on the council, I think it is when I met my current husband, who is the love of my life and a great partner. And he lived in San Diego. So at the time, everything, after I got off the council, it was like, Everything was changing for me. And so I had also grown up with the belief because it's what am I supposed to do for my tribe? But I also believed, even though I had never thought of living off the reservation, that I could, that Mm. it was a choice for me Mm -hmm. to stay. Mm -hmm. But now is the time to leave. Now was the time to choose to leave. And of course, it's extremely scary to do something. Mm. We've grown up in this community with everyone who has seen you as a child Mm -hmm. come up through an adult. There's a lot of safety in that. There's a lot of, you know, who's going to go to your funeral. You know Mm. who is going to be there when you get sick. You feel that generosity and that gratitude that come about when there's a death in the family and everybody in the community comes and supports you. And so it was really difficult. It was not an easy thing to leave, even though I did it for myself because I told my to-be husband, I said, if I'm going to leave the reservation, I have to work with other Indian people. And so I felt very privileged mm-hmm. that I did find a job in Southern California working with the Pechanga tribe. Okay. And so I ended up working there. And, and because I'm kind of an oddball, I worked there and I got involved in politics there as well with the state. We want to talk more about your story. I know you got some amazing insights, but not only is your story amazing, you're doing some great things that are making a difference. People want to hear about it. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm interviewing Jill Sherman Warren. She's going to be back with us for our next segment. Stay tuned. We've got more coming to you from Anchorage, Alaska, right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. 
furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA service center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm sitting in Anchorage, Alaska in the exhibit hall here with... uh, folks from literally all over the country who've come to the National Indian Health Board-sponsored National Tribal Health Conference. One of those individuals who has joined me from the top of the hour is Jill Sherman-Warren. She is joining us from California. Jill, it is uh, really great hearing your story. I'm so glad you're (laughs) able to, to join us here. Right. So, you know, winding up in Southern California was really an eye-opening experience for me because I got to see that tribes operate differently. Mm. And so I really found a home, a second home at Pachanga, which was great because I was with Indian people every day, but yeah, I was still in the urban environment Uh and ended up becoming their grant writer and their environmental director. Wow. So then right now I'm actually the executive director of the Native American Environmental Protection Coalition as well. And I work with 28 tribes in California, Nevada, and Arizona, and uh, specifically also with tribes along the U.S.-Mexico border. So we've done a lot of work in environmental health. Uh-huh. And then, of course, COVID came and hit and that caused me to come home more often to help with my parents who were aging. My dad's mm. 88 right now, but we lost my mom a few years ago. Mm. And so I was home more than I had been over the past 30 years. I had come home to the reservation and I came home one day and I told my husband, I, you're not going to like what I'm going to have to say, but I have to run for tribal council because I had that same burning sensation about going to college that I had. Uh-huh again and and he's like why do you want to do that to yourself again and anybody out there listening about being on tribal council i kind of feel like tribal members need to be penalized by serving on tribal council because it's not an easy thing it's not 
uh, an easy job because you're dealing with so many things. So you kind of have to pick and choose the things that are important to you. And for me, healthcare, especially with my parents, my mom had dementia. So it was mm. like, we didn't even get a diagnosis until she was really quite advanced um, with her dementia. Wow. And then my dad, who had a massive heart attack and stroke when he was 47 and still has aphasia and and is a diabetes and oh and dealing with a healthcare system that is so unlike, you know, like when I live in San Diego, I have Kaiser. Uh-huh. And it's just basic Kaiser HMO. But the care has been tremendous. The follow-up, the follow-through, the prevention that mm-hmm. they really mm-hmm. work to ensure and to be patient-centered care. Mm-hmm. And I think for me coming to this conference, one of the things that I wanted to see is I want to know what other tribes are doing, mm-hmm. the kind of mm-hmm. the new things. Because as tribal communities, especially in Hoopa, we're a rural reservation, Very as, rural. as you yeah. know. <laughs> Very rural, yeah. We're an hour away from the closest hospital. We provide the only ambulatory service in eastern Humboldt County. So we do it for on and off the reservation patients. And yet, you know, we have a hard time getting providers there. It's beautiful. It is. But providers don't want to come with families. And if we're looking at doctors typically are married to somebody who is not raised on the farm, was raised in an urban environment. You're not going to want to come to Hoopa because we don't have pizza delivery. We don't have a shopping mall nearby. Mm. And even, you know, if I was to say, well, Eureka has a shopping mall. If a partner's used to shopping in like LA or San Diego, the comparison is Uh, just simply not there. uh, You know, that is not it. So we need to have people who are used to a rural life. And mm-hmm. oftentimes that also means being lonely. And it means being lonely because tribal people don't typically easily accept people from the outside. For sure. There might be those here and there that do, but, you know, it means that you really have to concentrate on being together, right? And then potentially having someone knocking on your door in the middle of the night because they need medical care, right? You mm-hmm, know, like, so mm-hmm. there's all these things and we really need that old timey doctor that can go to people's houses. And so I want to know, I really wanted to see what's happening with addiction mm-hmm. because obviously on my reservation, we're having overdoses every single week. Mm-hmm. We are having between, you know, four and eight overdoses wow. of children and when I say children, I mean those under 18. Sure. We have an aging population that maybe the only person they see at any day, we have like 179 people who are over 65 who live on our reservation. And senior nutrition, their delivered meals might be the only person they see. Mm. And not that elders want you to come and sit in their home for three hours. They have TV shows to watch, you know. Typically, they have some, if they're a man, they're a country, you know, they have some sort of old Western from the 1950s that they're Uh trying to watch. So come in, stay for 15 minutes, bring us a can of coffee and leave, right? Because they get their thing, they get Uh their, they're Uh set in their ways. But just knowing that they're cared about, that somebody cares about them. And I think also with, and maybe this is a dirty word to talk about climate change, but I'm going to say it. We know that climate change or impacts of climate change, whether it's wildfire smoke or intense heat, especially with our critical populations like those who are diabetic, Mm -hmm. those who are elderly, those who are 
young mm-hmm. have a harder time dealing with temperature changes and can't regulate that as easily. And then you have smoke from wildfires that literally probably two feet off the ground during the wildfire last season, we had seven HEPA filters running 24 hours a day in my dad's house. Mm. We had one HEPA filter that if he would go to the kitchen table, it sat next to him and he went to the living room to sit to watch TV. It sat next to him because at one point he thought he was having a heart attack, but it was really just Just trying to get smoke. Right. And so it's like, He's 88. He doesn't want to leave his house. And we're doing everything we can to ensure that he doesn't ever have to leave his house. Mm-hmm. You know, because people like, you know, they have their favorite chair. They have their sure. bed. They sure. they don't want to leave. It's hard for an 88-year-old to leave. And so it's like keeping them hydrated. I wanted to see what other people are doing. And I have found some exciting things. Good, good, So, good. you know, I am happy that it came because they found out there's a shot that they can use instead of the Suboxone films. Mm. There's a once a month shot. I'm like, that's amazing. And it's amazing because it's regulated. It means that you don't have to, something you don't have to think about every day. You just need to make that once a month doctor's appointment. You know, because we're talking about making people's lives easier. No, all that makes a huge difference. I think a lot of folks, though, as they're listening to our interview, Jill, they're saying, wow, this woman is really <laughs> on the front lines in environmental health issues. And right. I, I think that's something you, know, you talked about climate change. And you're right. We have listeners across the political spectrum. And right. some folks, they're excited when we have a guest that mentions something <laughs> along a polarizing issue and someone else is upset and you know someone says you know why did you have that person on we're just letting people tell their stories and right. i like to see things through different people's eyes so you're the executive director of is it called the native american environmental protection coalition, coalition. yes and for folks that don't know about that organization tell us a little bit about you know, what you do. So as I mentioned, I found a home at Pachanga and Pachanga was one of the founding members of this organization. Mm-hmm. And there were four founding tribes and they formed this organization right before they got into gaming because those tribes have big gaming, Okay, you know? And so they did it because they were concerns about what would happen with their environments, okay. their reservation environments. Uh-huh. Hoopa has the largest land base. We're the largest land based tribe in Hoopa. Well, the tribes in Southern California, like there's one of the tribes that has like six acres. You know, a lot of the tribes in, in Southern California have less than a thousand acres. Mm-hmm. So when they're looking at protecting their environments from a finite amount of land, they have to be really thoughtful mm-hmm. about that. And that's why they did that. Now, when we talk about largest land base, you're talking about within California. Yes. You're not as big as Navajo no, Nation no, no, or something. No, no, largest land okay. base in California. <laughs> I just want sure. to make sure we're on the <laughs> Some same Navajo page. Navajo will come and hit yeah. me on the head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, right. Or Pine Ridge or Tanahata. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah, there, sure. there are some very large ones out there, and I've been pleased to work with a lot of them. Wonderful. So it's great. But, so this is a nonprofit, a okay. small nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We only have two staff members myself. Okay. So saying executive director is kind of in a stretch because what am I? I used to have a staff prior to COVID that was like five. But, uh-huh. but even then, that's small. And uh, we have 28 member tribes, and so tribes have resolutions. Any federally recognized tribe in the United States can become a member of oh, okay. our organization. 
And what we do is help tribes in their environmental programs build mm. their capacity and their mm -hmm. capabilities of managing environmental programs to really take sovereignty to the next step of engaging in environmental protection on their reservation and within their Aboriginal territories. So I'm assuming a lot of the larger tribes already have well-developed systems for this, so it's more the smaller tribes that are connecting with you? No, no. It just, it depends. Tribes vary in their maturity and mm. uh, of environmental program management. So some are still emerging and some are mature, but even the maturing programs, you know, we have uh, staffing, that staff turnovers and things like that that create issues. And so... We work with just trying to keep the staff engaged and moving. And we know that based on talking to our tribes, they're concerned about what's happening environmentally to traditional foods and medicines mm -hmm. that they've relied on. A lot of great stuff that you're involved with. I'm inspired to hear what you're doing, hear your whole story. We've got to step away just briefly. We're going to come back right after some very important messages. Dr. David DeRose with Jill Sherman Warren. We'll be right back after these words. Stay tuned. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. 
Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I am so glad that Jill Sherman Warren is still in the studio, our virtual (laughs) studio here. But you've been uh, joined by a distinguished Native gentleman. Can you tell me who's sitting next to you? Uh, well, my husband, Jim Warren. Uh, he is uh, the owner of Warrior Society Development, and he's also a documentarian. It, it is so good to have you, Jim. And um, some of my listeners, if they're regular listeners, they know Don's name, your brother, who's a physician. And uh, the interesting notes that we were comparing is Don <laughs> was sitting on a couple of the flights that we were on coming here to Anchorage, and so we had a chance just to visit briefly. We weren't sitting in any close proximity, but it's good to meet some more of the family. And we were just about to talk uh, some uh, more about environmental health, and I know that's something that's close to both of your hearts. So tell us a little bit, uh, Jill, about your special concern with asthma in Indian country. So working in environmental programs, right? I've had to develop a lot of things from scratch. And we talk a lot about asthma in Indian country. They've done a lot of production, but they haven't really mentioned the environmental factors that could be contributing to asthmatic conditions or upper respiratory conditions. Mm -hmm. And that is that about 60% of the roads that are on reservations are actually dirt Mm. and you add dirt with high heat you get more dirt and dust Mm -hmm. and pm 10s you know pm well now it's pm 2.5 those really small dust particles that can actually get into your bloodstream and can be very dangerous not to mention maybe naturally occurring minerals that act like asbestos Mm -hmm. that people are breathing Mm -hmm. in when Mm -hmm. they're driving around we don't have any data on that and i don't think anybody's really looking at environmental factors that are contributing to um, chronic illnesses. And we need to be talking more about that. So I'm trying to find somebody who has money to do the research and can really kind of put the two together because right now it's just my own little hypothesis in my brain. (laughs) No, I think it's great. And so you got a forum here, both at the conference and on the radio show. And sitting next to you, Jim, if I'm understanding correctly, this is an area that's close to your heart because you're working especially with Native Americans and some of their disabilities, some of the challenges they face, correct? Yeah, and uh, thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to be here with Jill. And uh, environmental health is uh, a big aspect in Indian country, a significant challenge when you consider the disability rates in Indian country. So we as a race of people have the highest rate of disability. And a lot of that is due to some of the circumstances in the Indian communities. Obviously, the dirt road reality or the BIA roads and all these that Mm -hmm. we're dealing with. But there's other aspects of asbestos and old buildings and the HUD housing back in the day and some of the quality of water that our people are getting, all of which these environmental factors lead to higher rates of disability ultimately. So when you think of uh, preventative health, a lot of that has to include some of the realities that Indian country have in terms of the dirt roads and some of the poverty issues that lead mm-hmm. to those increased public health aspects that we're dis- discussing with chronic illness that leads into long-term disability. Mm-hmm. So we're here trying to fix uh, all these things downstream. And my brother eloquently has a story about uh, going upstream 
to uh, solve the problems. Mm. So there's three sisters walking along a river, and, and they see a baby float by, and then they see another one, and then the one sister jumps in to save the babies. The other one jumps in and goes, we need to teach them to swim. And then they watch the mm. third sister continue walking, and they angrily go, what are you doing? Help us. I want to go upstream and find out why these babies are getting put in the river. So that's what I use in the philosophy of the programs for Indian country. We need to go upstream because we're dealing with significant challenges mm -hmm. in healthcare, but we're dealing with it post-issue. If we get upstream, mm -hmm. we can stop a lot of these disabilities and the behavioral and the mental health and the obviously the physical and the, the asthma that we're discussing now. It's all these things that could be prevented. So when you think of preventative health, you need to think of environmental factors of Indian country. From my perspective, I love the perspective. As a young medical student, I remember meeting a guy and they sent me into his room. He's a veteran. I was in a VA facility and I look at this guy and I think on this chart, maybe it said he was in his 60s and the guy looked great. He looked like he's in his 50s. I kind of wondering, looks fine. I mean, what's the guy doing here? And I start talking with him and seemed perfectly healthy. But then I found out he couldn't walk across the room because he had such severe COPD. And we speak about asthma and lung issues and these environmental health factors. The problem with a lot of these conditions, we know, is people don't realize the damage is being done until it's too late. I mean, the same is true with, with renal disease. I was speaking in a tribal venue a few years ago, and we were talking about high blood pressure. And a lot of tribes have great diabetes programs. But I was saying, you know, a lot of people don't have high blood pressure on their radar screen. We were talking about some of the work we were doing with blood pressure. And one of the uh, community health workers said, yeah, I just left a tribal member's home, and they're in shock because they had just been to the nephrologist, told them they need to go on dialysis, and they said, but, but I don't have diabetes. So the high blood pressure had been eroding their kidney function. So as we talk about disabilities in Indian country, they're real things. And like you said, there's upstream determinants. Right. So I know you share this common vision, Jill, as a tribal council person. How has this perspective that your husband's been cultivating, how has that impacted how you interact with uh, other tribal leadership? Well, I try to talk about what should we be doing as tribal leaders, because I think as tribal leaders, we try to remain humble. But when we look at how we're advocating in Indian country and we're going, you know, because we're the ones who are asked to go and speak in front of Congress, who are to prepare testimony. And so we have a habit of just asking for what we need in the now. But what we really need to be doing is asking for what we need in totality to repair the wrongs and to prepare ourselves for the future. So, so we as tribal leaders need to be stronger in how we ask for things, not just for today, but what, what it will really take. So instead of asking, for 900,000 or 2 million, we need to be asking for 15, 20, 30 million per tribe for one issue. Let's say it's irrigation or let's say it's getting physicians in. Like we need to ask for more than we can even put our mind around because we have to ask mm -hmm. not for to bring us up to contemporary standards, but also to um, make sure that we're ensuring our future generations have the help that they will need as well. Tremendous. Jim, one of the interesting things I think that comes up in a lot of this dialogue, Jill's been sharing her story of having this vision of giving back. 
And I know that's part of your story as well. And a lot of times people think, well, if you're focused on giving back to your tribe or to Indian country, then there's a danger that you're going to not take care of yourself. But what's interesting, I think, about your story, it was in the context of giving back. If I understand the story right, that's how you guys met. Am I, did I hear that right, <laughs> yes, Jim? actually. It was a grant writing conference, and I was one of the trainers. And there were uh-huh. uh, tribal grant writers and tribal leaders that we were outreaching to develop uh, tribal disability programs, vocational rehabilitation, various disability uh, public health programs uh, through grant writing and program development. Mm-hmm. And that's my specialty is organizational development, and either with existing organizations or creating from the ground up to indigenize the approach. So that was mm-hmm. what we were teaching. And then, uh, of course, she walks in late and makes her grand I, I entry. <laughs> 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 but, uh, you know, obviously I said, oh, wow, you know, and then uh, little did I know it would be a lifelong wow. <laughs> uh-huh. So it was wonderful wow, to meet her and then having that commonality, you know, even though she saw me as an urban Indian initially, you know, as a res girl, but we had that commonality of what we wanted to do for the people. And she was doing it for hers mm-hmm. and Hoopa, and I was doing it for mine in Pine Ridge, but we both do it universally through all indigenous tribal nations. So that's fun to be able to do that together, even though we're both focused in different areas, they do cross paths. Because I see uh, the disability culture and the Indian culture intertwining constantly because we're Mm -hmm. misidentified, we're not included, we're marginalized. We need federal acts for self-determination. So it's Mm -hmm. amazing that, you know, we need federal acts to just be who we are as Indian people or people with disabilities. And that's some Mm -hmm. of the barriers we're facing in the systemic nature of healthcare and government policy is often they forget who we are, including us. So we're the oh yeah culture, not only in Indian country, but disability culture. And then they go, oh, we need to go back and include them somehow later after the fact, which is always, mm-hmm. you know, getting the scraps versus being at the table. We're usually on the table being cut out. <laughs> so that's the reality of we must be participatory in these frustrating systems that usually do not get indigenous issues. But if we don't participate, then we can't complain. Because they're going to do their thing, and they might think they're doing something good for Indian country, but bless their hearts, they don't know what is out there, what the real issues are. So I call it ally building. We need our non-Indian allies to stand with us or to sit and roll with us in a wheelchair or to limp with us. Whatever our situation is, is what kind of footprints are we leaving for future generations? And I don't care if it's a footprint or a wheelchair print or whatever print you leave. Hmm. What can you do for those future generations, not only in disability, but culture, language? To maintain that element because I think that's another aspect of uh, prevention is culture. And if our kids know who they are and are proud of who they are and have that connection to Indian country and their culture for thousands of years here, they tend to have better outcomes academically, socially, mm-hmm. academically mm-hmm. in terms of dropout rates and uh, health care. So when we think of our kids every day at Pine Ridge, our young ones attempting suicide. And they're not all successful, fortunately, but as a result, there's disability issues leading them to that decision. And then post-attempt, there's new disability issues. Yeah, Yeah. so it's multi-generational, and that's why we want to make those footprints for future generations. So warrior society development. If someone 
hasn't heard of that organization. We hear your passion for dealing with disabilities. Is that what your organization focuses on? Actually, it's a wide variety. One of the divisions of uh, my company is getting the uh, grants for disability programs because mm. I do that in honor of my father. My brother and I watched my dad, Jim Sr., finally get diagnosed with MS because he went through mm. many years not knowing back mm -hmm. in the 70s they couldn't diagnose it. So there was frustration there, but you know, as he progressed with his disability, I didn't see the disability that most people do. So it was wonderful to have him as a strong advocate. And I was an advocate, my brother and I, before we even knew what the word was. Mm -hmm. My brother may have. <laughs> but uh, he went to the front door at eight years old and nine years old to let the manager know that I'm in the kitchen making room for my dad's wheelchair. Because we're mm -hmm. going to eat here whether you want us or not. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kind of empowerment was that for us? Just defending dad, advocating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so that was just intertwined in our life, in our developmental stages. So now, as an adult, I'm still advocating for disabilities. And just because of what my father went through with pre-ADA, Americans with Disabilities mm -hmm. Act, which is essentially civil rights for people with disabilities, but it was unfunded, so it's being determined by litigation. So that's another challenge of including people with disabilities. And when people think of disabilities, they may think of blindness, deafness, or wheelchair, but it's much more than that. And right, Indian country right. has about a 30% disability rate. Wow, wow. So if we're working with Indian country, you better have some sort of disability baseline at least, mm -hmm. at minimum, because a lot of your clientele is going to have a disability, mental, emotional, or physical. Well, right. We have to step away briefly. We've got one more break, and then we're going to close things off. I know you got some great material that we want to share before we finish. Dr. David DeRose with The Warns. We will be back from Anchorage, Alaska right after these important messages. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit stoptextsstoprex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. Aces are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. 
A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Dr. David DeRose, I've got Jim Warren, CEO of Warrior Society Development, uh, sitting across from me. And right next to him, Jill Sherman Warren, Hoopa Tribal Council member. I've uh, been enjoying the energy that you've brought to our virtual studio here and also the great material that have been sharing. Jim, we haven't spoken about something, and I may actually start with, with your wife's perspective on it. I know that's a little bit <laughs> unconventional, but you are also a film producer. And uh, the question I have for Jill, did you know that one of Jim's interests was in film production when you guys first got together? Yes, actually. You know, we talked about our own dreams, and one of his that he mentioned to me was he actually plans on winning an Oscar one day, and I have no doubt that he will do that. But at the time, he was an actor, and so he was um, doing some movies and films. Really? Yeah. So that's the Southern California connection. That was the Southern California connection. I can't say that I'm super impressed by those things because <laughs> they aren't to me, but uh, it's something he wants to do. I'm all behind him. Great, great. So, you know, we've heard about Warrior Society development. We've heard you're a grant writer. And now we put this other piece in the puzzle, films. But first tell us, because you've had a couple of very successful films, and some of my listeners may know of them. They may have seen them. So mm -hmm. tell us about what you've been doing. Yeah, and uh, when we did meet on our honeymoon, we went to Cannes in France, and I definitely wanted to go to the Cannes Film Festival, and I told her on our honeymoon, we're going to be back here. Yes. Uh -huh. And so, again, it, it was a dream that I have, and I'm a big dreamer, and I encourage our youth to dream. Tremendous. Yes. And uh, every time I do a youth event, I go, what's your dream? Who has a dream? And uh -huh. if they're not raising their hands, I go, you better raise your hand, because <laughs> I'm still dreaming as an old man. As uh -huh. you said, I'm dreaming about my Oscar someday. But uh, my film division, WSD Productions, I just got into that because I always wanted to be behind the camera, because mm. as an actor and a stuntman, it was frustrating the roles I had to play mm. with the Hollywood stereotype. Mm -hmm. So I got out of acting and uh, stunt work just out of frustration, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just dealing with uh, various, uh, you know, it's ignorance by design and the Hollywood stereotype. I'm not that good of an actor to do it. <laughs> so I said, I'm going to get behind the uh, camera and control the product. Uh -huh. And now I'm getting uh, information out there. My first film, Seventh Generation, was a great experience for me. And I piled in probably seven movies <laughs> in that one movie thinking this might be my only mm -hmm opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I teamed up with Seminole uh, Media in hmm. Florida. I did my usual seventh generation speech and a young man said, sir, we need to tell this story and make it a movie. I go, ah, I've been wanting to do that. Uh -huh. So John Voth, he was a young man to approach me and he was filming our conference and he's our director for my first film. And he did a great job of really seeing my vision and getting that on to the film. 
and then we edited it into a final product that did quite well. It's still on Amazon Prime, so you can mm. check it out for free if you're a Prime member. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And it's wonderful to be able to lecture and teach through film. And that's essentially what I'm doing as a filmmaker is just telling our stories from indigenous perspectives. Because mm -hmm. the majority of media out there is telling our story from a non-Indian mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. So again, I want to be able to make sure that indigenous element is pure, if you will, in the script or in the storyline so that it's not changed any way to fit into an American system. It remains indigenous. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm doing well with the awards and recognition just because it is a unique way to make sure that, oh, America gets an indigenous perspective versus a non-Indian perspective about us. So I love the fact to be able to tell our stories. And it was interesting in Durango Film Festival, we won an audience award there, which was awesome. And then they had all the filmmakers for the Indian section. And I was the only Indian as a producer. Uh -huh. The other producers used Indians for their story. Right, right. So that was wonderful. They're wonderful people, but I want the Indians up there with me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So again, we're still working on it in Hollywood. Most people in America know who Indians are through John Wayne University. Mm, they enough. only know the Hollywood stereotype, and mm -hmm. they still only get that. Mm -hmm. Now we're getting productions with Indian people running it, directing, writing, producing. So I may get back into acting and just be the elder in the corner someday, but that would be wonderful to be able to audition for something that's not telling me to be the Hollywood stereotype. Uh -huh. They want an actual native person. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I'm still around to be able to see this good, change good. in the world of entertainment and documentaries and, and education. That's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. So, so Jill, you're both the tribal council person, the cheerleader, associate producer, whatever terminology <laughs> we want to use for you. I know sometimes one of the challenges when we're a couple, both being very successful in what we're doing, the time challenges, <laughs> the space challenges. How are you navigating that, Jill? Well, I think we started off navigating it that way because I was living in Hoopa and he was in San Diego. So we always had to coordinate schedules to see each other. Mm -hmm. And then we got married and he was still traveling 179 days a year. Wow. So we've always kind of had that. And I think our personalities are such, not that we don't get along, but we're obviously both very strong personalities. Uh -huh. And I think that's what makes it when we are together so much better that we spent this time maybe learning something else or mm -hmm. doing things, but sharing with each other as well. So there's not a day that goes by that we don't talk to one another, whether it's email or text. I mean, sometimes on the reservation, our cellular service goes out. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, then you can't right, talk, right, right, right. <laughs> which makes it difficult. But yeah, it's been great. I think one of the things that he helped me become better at is to be more positive in the way mm -hmm. I look at things because mm -hmm. I think I certainly was pessimistic previously. And we have been through so much together that every day is a grateful day. Every mm -hmm. day we, we have gratitude that we're still here, we're still together, we're still able to do the things we can do. Everything else is just noise. That is so huge. I mean, the power <laughs> of gratitude. I've been looking at research on that. We just did a series on resilience mm -hmm. and just powerful stuff. You mentioned Seventh Generation, the film, uh, award-winning film. And folks in Indian country, they say, oh, seventh generation, we know that. But we've got a lot of non-native listeners. So mm -hmm. what is the significance of seventh generation? What was the film about? It comes from Black Elk philosophy. And uh, many of the other indigenous nations have similar philosophies of seven generations. And what it is essentially is all of us as two-legged must represent seven generations behind and seven generations ahead. And what a wonderful philosophy and responsibility mm. for all of us to represent our people, our family in a good way so that the ancestors are being addressed. But we're also planning for the future ancestors. 
And my brother very eloquently shared today in his speech that with the seventh generation philosophy, someone from Wounded Knee Time was mm. praying for us mm. today. Mm. And we're doing that now to whatever footprints we leave. That's my thing is leaving a footprint mm -hmm. is uh, what are those footprints going to be in terms of impacting seven generations ahead? Mm. The people will never meet in this world, but we have that responsibility, all of us, non-Indians as well. So I think some of that tribal philosophy of seventh generation would benefit our non-Indian allies, particularly in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it's not just this current uh, political cycle huh? yes. that's important. Yeah, and politics, uh, an elder from Oklahoma very eloquently stated, uh, politics is poly, the Latin root for many, and ticks, blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> so, <laughs> no offense, my dear, <laughs> as a politician. Wait a minute now, wait a minute now. <laughs> but again, it's that reality, and then Jill's so truthful, that almost hurts her as a politician. Mm. She wants to share everything with the people. But that is the indigenous philosophy, that everyone in the circle in the Teoshbae, the community, is included. And that's something that we've gotten away from, from getting away from tribal philosophies and the capitalistic philosophies. Mm. So instead of doing what you can for yourself, what can you do for the people? So again, Kennedy, when he said that, was thinking indigenous. Mm. But again, Kennedy was not a good president for Indian country. Mm. So again, it's an interesting dynamic of who I vote for. I'm not a member of a political party. I vote for who's going to do the least damage to Indian people. Mm. Wouldn't it be wonderful I could vote for someone that would actually benefit wow. Indian people? Wow. But we're getting closer because more of us are in the system. Mm -hmm. And having a Native person as the head of uh, Interior BIA for yes. the first time mm -hmm. in history, it's always been older white men. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We didn't do too well with that. But we're doing a little bit better now. But she's trying to correct many generations of uh -huh. BIAs now, actually Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's always been bossing Indians around. Mm -hmm. So that's our reality. And now we have someone, but there's still so much. Right. Even with Jill's tribe, they're suing the interior for water rights and fishing rights. So again, there's so many generations of correcting that we need to do. That's why we need to make sure that seven generations ahead has that knowledge and that ability to make change. And uh, we may not see it, but we're seeing some of it as we grow older. And you mentioned how we are dynamic. She was hit by a drunk driver at 90 miles an hour head-on collision. Whoa. So she was not supposed to be here. But That's the drunk amazing. driver died and she lived. But, That's you know, amazing. I was ready for prosthetics and everything because she was supposed to lose her leg. And I had the high heel prosthetic. She loves her <laughs> high heels. And so I was all ready. And then I was talking to Tankashla, the creator. I go on. ah, I'm in disabilities, Dad. You help me prepare because my wife is going to have a disability. Mm. I'm able to be there for her. Whoa. But then a miracle woman that she is, she ended up walking out. Yeah. So she just has a nice little uh, cute pigeon toe now. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, our time has slipped away. I know we could have kept you guys behind the mic for a long time, but uh, I know you got other responsibilities. Final point of contact, maybe your film production company. Mm -hmm. How can someone get a hold of you? Uh, Warrior-society.com. So warrior-society.com. You can check out the work I do in academia and go into the film division link and uh, do still do a lot of things with youth because I want to make sure the future generations have some of that knowledge. So I do film camps, athletic camps, just beautiful, life skills. Beautiful. And if they're trying to track down Jill, maybe work through Jim. Is that well, the best I way to do it? I actually have my own website as well. Yes. What website would you like to give it's out? It's at jillshermanwarren.com. Oh, you're making it easy <laughs> for us. So J-I-L-L, -L, Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N. Hyphen. Oh, hyphen, Warren. Yes. Okay, W-A-R-N-E. Yes. Okay, dot com. Dot com. That easy. <laughs> we do have to run. All Jill, right. Jim, thank you so much. It was much. a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for each one who's joined today for American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One.
the Native American Radio Network.